Welcome to the Taking the Lead podcast, where we empower people to be unstoppable. I'm Christina Hepner with my co-hosts, Leslie Hoskins and Timothy Cunio. So now that the holidays have been over for a while and, you know, the last traveling I did was up north for, you know, New Year's Eve weekend, I need a, I need a trip. You're getting I the need, itch again? I'm getting the itch because it's cold in Michigan mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I need somewhere warm. I, I have trips planned, but I can't say they're anywhere really warm. In February, I'm headed off to Illinois for the Illinois AER conference, which is a professional conference for other um, orientation mobility specialists such as myself and teachers of the visually impaired and whatnot. So I will be presenting there. I am heading Ooh. to Tybee Island, though, in Georgia. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I'm going to be in Georgia, yeah, end of March for another conference Wait, there. Wait, what's Tybee what? Island? I've never been. Timothy, have you been to Tybee Island? I hear it's, like, ridiculously beautiful. Tybee Island? Yeah, in Georgia. Uh, it's like a desert. Oh, Tybee, yes, yes. It's gorgeous, but you will probably need a sweater still down in here. In March? No, End of March? No, it, End of March. It'll be, in the, it'll be in the 80s. It'll be in the 80s. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. A sweater. Are you kidding me? I'll be that roasting. Mi- yeah, Michigan girl going to the south in March. <laughs> Bring your bathing suit and you'll be all right. Yeah, Tybee Island would be great. I guess you're going to go through Savannah. You're going to fly to Savannah? I know. I got to book those flights soon. I got to figure out what I'm doing. Well, uh, while you're there, you need to tour Savannah. It's, Savannah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of like... Um, What's that one in Charleston, South Carolina? Oh, it's yeah. The old homes, the big, the houses. Oh, it's I, beautiful in Savannah. I love Savannah. those areas. Like okay. dream places to live is one of those areas. You have to go to the Paula Deen restaurant in Savannah. Okay. I got to figure, I really do need to focus on getting this travel arranged and figuring out Brian <laughs> might come with me or my kids. I'm not really sure quite yet. Um, This this doesn't sound like a work trip. Uh, it is a work trip. <laughs> I will be presenting. Uh, it's another professional conference. Well, so it's I'll like be I'll be presenting one hour of one day. And <laughs> then <laughs> the two-day conference. No, I am really looking forward to kind of being more present at some of these professional conferences because it is crazy. We have been providing O&M services for 20 years at Leader Dog. Well, now almost 21 because we're in 2023. Um and people still don't know about it. I talked to a professional the other day who's been in the blindness and low vision field for 17 years, and he had no idea that we provided O&M services. And it's it's not his fault, right? Like, we haven't been promoting it a lot as much as we are now. So I'm excited to scream it from the rooftops and be at these different state conferences and, and share what we've got going on. That's exciting. Is there any need for a digital marketing manager in the conference? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know me and technology, so probably okay. setting up the presentation. Right. We'll talk to our boss about that one. I'll be <laughs> yeah. like... And if you need a leader dog, Listen, I'll be there. You know, client stories are 1,000% always better than me talking. So. Okay, we could just take the podcast to we'll this take the team. We'll island. Take, that sounds so lead. cool. I'm going to have to look this place up. <laughs> I do think that would be really fun. Well, we'll go ahead and dive right into it because today's guest is a leader dog client who recently was on campus for orientation and mobility. And it was so fun because actually Christina and I had the pleasure of meeting him while on campus. Yes. Bill Massey is a retired middle school teacher and Vietnam veteran. Thank you so much for your service. And he's an author of a book about middle middle school students educating a teacher. He was diagnosed with glaucoma in 2010 and just recently found leader dog. Bill, welcome to the podcast. And again, just like Christina said, thank you for your service. And being a teacher, boy, uh, taking uh, teaching kids these days, I, 
I don't know how anybody does it, but can you describe what glaucoma is and what are the signs of it? Okay. Um, glaucoma is rather insidious in that it is slow progression of the dying off of light receptors in your eye. And that is accelerated by excessive eye pressure. And uh, you basically have to go every three months and have eye pressure checked and you try to control it with eye drops. Um, now, in my particular case, I was unfortunate to have what they call low pressure glaucoma, which means the pressure needs to be kept in the single digits to slow down the progression of vision loss, whereas uh, regular glaucoma, you can have it in the teens. And eye drops are not very successful at controlling the pressure that low. So my progression of vision loss is more rapid and more assured, so to speak. Now, glaucoma really is the loss of the light receptors. You have about 3 million light receptors in your eyes, as I understand it. And I am now down to about 200,000. And the peripheral vision in your eye, you're, you're legally blind with glaucoma if you have uh, a vision loss uh, or you have remaining vision of 20 radial degrees or more of your circular peripheral vision. It's kind of like a slice of the pie. And then you have the condition of the vision within that slice that you relate to the 2020 spectrum. And so I have recently learned that you are legally blind if you have vision of 20 over 200 or the radial vision in your eye is 20 degrees or less. And my radial vision is seven degrees and the quality of the vision in that slice is 20 over 2200. Wow, Bill. So I basically can see shadows and sh uh, shapes if they're moving. Mm -hmm. So that, is... that's the extent of my vision. That is so interesting. It's a great hear. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people, yeah. you know, really know the depth of type, different types of vision loss. So, Bill, you know, you said, you know, we said in 2010 you were diagnosed with glaucoma. When did you start mm -hmm. to notice that you were having some vision problems? Well, my eye doctor t told me in 2010, you, sh you need to get a, a field of vision test to for glaucoma, and he was so casual about it that I just kind of took it with complacency. And it wasn't until maybe six months or so after that that I had the first milestone in vision loss. I was I went to bed, turned off the light, and I saw this little red blinking light at the ceiling to my right, and when I would look at it, it wasn't there. When I'd look away, it was there. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was the first instance of actual vision loss in the center. So that when I looked at the light, nothing was there because there were no light receptors. But I let that go for a while. And I didn't really have it checked out until my next eye appointment. And he asked me, did you have it done? And I said, no, you, you know, uh, you suggested it. He did one that day, and he said, you're already in advanced stage of glaucoma. Now, 
the bad news about glaucoma is it's so gradual. The good news about glaucoma is it's so gradual because <laughs> subconsciously, as your vision diminishes, you adapt without knowing you're adapting. And you start doing things from feel that you used to do from sight. And you don't really know you're doing some of that stuff. And when I realized that it was really at a point that something drastic had to be done was when I was coming home from school one day and I ran a red light without ever having seen the stoplight. And that was because I had no peripheral vision in the top portion of my eyes. And I said to my wife, I think I'm going to have to give up driving because this happened. And she said, well, then that's a no brainer. And at the end of this school year, which wasn't a couple of weeks later, I retired, forced out of teaching by my vision. Now I'll be very honest with you. I probably would still be teaching if it weren't for that. Teaching was the best, lowest paying job I ever had. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a great way to describe it, having uh, many educators in my family as well. Um, So can you tell us about, you you know, so your your doctor told you you have glaucoma. I'm curious to Mm -hmm. hear about when were you diagnosed as legally blind? Because that was something that we talked about briefly while you were on campus or that you shared. Um, So so Mm -hmm. do you mind telling that story a little bit? No, I was out walking one day uh, back in maybe January and I was walking and I knew I I looked down at the sidewalk because by then I couldn't see very far out in front of me and I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't have any peripheral vision at the top. And I walked, almost walked into a gentleman pushing his baby in the stroller. And he had to go out and go around me on the sidewalk. And he said, come on, man, and went around me. And it was the most embarrassing, humiliating thing. I never saw him. And I realized then I'm walking, looking down. And I should be able to walk looking up and use what vision I have. And so I said to my wife, I've got to do something besides sit here and go blind. And I don't know what to do. No one ever mentioned anything to me about you are visually impaired, you are legally blind, and you're blind along that spectrum. So we are fortunate for me, we have the Moorhead School for the Blind here where I live. And I just called them. And the switchboard switch uh, transferred me to a lady. And she transferred me to a lady who transferred me to a division of DHS here called North Carolina Services for the Blind. And the woman that I talked to there said, well, I'm gonna send you a form. You have to get your eye doctor to fill this out, substantiating that you are legally blind. So I took that to my eye doctor who I'd been going to, uh, and this was just this past January. I had been going to him since 2010. And he filled the form out that's how I knew my vision was seven degrees and 20, 2200. And I said, well, how long have I been legally blind? He said, you've been legally blind for almost five years. 
Oh, my goodness. And you never and that knew. was the first mention to me of being legally blind. Now, I don't think the doctors at the eye clinic want to talk to you about blindness because mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to prevent. This happens all the time, right? So people have no idea mm-hmm. that they're diagnosed or that they're legally blind, and then they they qualify for services. I, I think this happens, we hear it all the time, right? Eye doctors sometimes don't know that services even exist or how to make referrals or how important that legal blindness diagnosis is. Um, mm-hmm. This just actually happened to my grandpa just this week. He just oh found goodness. out that he's legally blind, and it's kind of the same thing that he's been legally blind for a while now, and now he can qualify mm-hmm. for different services. And it's it's frustrating. Um, and I appreciate you bringing this topic up and sharing your personal experience with it. Because how did that make you feel? So, like once you found out you've been legally blind for five years, had no idea, you could have started some things a little sooner. Well, you know. It didn't really have as much of an impact on me there in his office when he said it as it did when I submitted this form to the North Carolina Services for the Blind, and I found out all the things that had been available to me for five years. Mm-hmm. Now, Leader Dog being one of the most important, which I knew nothing about, and I still didn't know anything about it. They didn't know anything. They didn't mention anything about that. I know about it now. But the point is, I was then angered because I feel like those five years were taken away from me getting myself better prepared. Yeah. And I don't know what I would have done differently in those five years, except I would have done something. And I just sat and let it go by until I almost ran a gentleman off the sidewalk with the baby. And it should never have come to that. Um, all this, all so, this sounded familiar to me, Bill. I mean, your stories, you know, I can sit back and think the same things going, I went through, and I'm sure there's thousands of other people doing the same thing. So how did you find uh-huh. LeaderDoc? Because apparently nobody knew about LeaderDoc. So how did you find out about it? Well, I'll tell you how one of the services they provided to me, they don't call it O&M training so much, is they call it cane training. Now, interestingly enough, um, before I found about cane, the cane training services available to me, um, my daughter ordered me my first cane off Amazon. And so I just started trying to learn to use that to not trip over a curve or fall into a pothole. Um, but finally, one of the services that I became aware of through them was the cane training. So I got five one-hour lessons using a cane, and by the time the the instructor picked me up and took me to an intersection or to a section where we would uh, practice, I would only get about 30 minutes a session, and then I would, she'd have to move on to her next appointment. Now, I'm never going to blame her. She covers seven counties in North Carolina and has 80 clients. And so she, she just doesn't have time and flexibility. And on my last lesson with her, we kind of said, okay, this is it. Thank you or whatever. And I said, well, Carol, what do I do now? And she said, well, you might try a leader dog. And I said, what is a leader dog? And she said, well, they're well-known for providing guide dogs, but they're, I think, the only provider of O&M training. 
And I said, well, where are they and how do I get in touch with them? She said, I'll email you the phone number. And she did. And I called. And that started the process. So I wind up applying to lead the dog, I think, in May. I got word in June that I'd been accepted. I got called in October and told that there was an availability in November. And Erica called me and she said, and I said, I'll take it. I said, fortunately, it won't be cold there yet. She said, too late. (laughs) Too late. (laughs) Yes. Now, I went up there and it snowed three of the five days that I was there. (laughs) And I was thrilled by that because we don't get a lot of snow. And so everybody, you know, kept saying, oh, it's going to be so cold. It's going to be so cold. Well, the forecast for here on Christmas Day is nine degrees. Oh, goodness. In North Carolina. So it prepared so, you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you prepare me in more ways than one. You guys, and you don't even advertise that. <laughs> but anyway, that's how I found out about Leader Dog. And I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't really know what the orientation of the mobility facets of O&M were. Um, I tried to find out as much about it as I could you know, on your website and everything uh, and had a little bit more information. But I can say that I went there for the week and, you know, it, it, the experience at Leader Dog is such that you, you're ready to go home and you don't want to leave. And that's quite a conundrum. Um, But I, uh, and and when I got home, people said, well, tell me about your experience at Leader Dog. I said, you can't describe an experience. I can tell you what we did, but you won't have the experience. And people just don't know what that experience is like. Because when, when you're blind, going blind, as you go blind, your world shrinks. And I didn't know another single person who was blind until I started looking into services for the blind. I did find out that there was a camp in North Carolina. This I went to back in June for all blind people. And that was quite interesting to be with about 80 people who all were, you know, had vision problems. And that was my first exposure. But like I said, at Leader Dog, you you have to experience Leader Dog to know what Leader Dog is. And it starts from the day I was picked up at the airport throughout the week to the gentleman who took me back to the airport was a volunteer named Eric, as helpful as he could be. And everybody there is genuinely empathetic. And that's one of the things that you don't experience a lot in the real world when you're blind is empathy because people don't know what to do with you and everybody there. It's more like a mission to you guys than a job. And I think it would have to be that way for you to be successful. And the instructors, I mean, not only are they knowledgeable, but they're so supportive and so encouraging. And, and I can only speak for the one I had, I had Lynn and Lynn <laughs> and I, got along real well. He and I are roughly the same age. And so we could talk about movies and TV shows and music that none of you guys know. About. <laughs> I'm sure he <laughs> loved <Yes>. that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we would be walking along going, remember this show, remember this song, whatever. But, uh, and, and it was just that kind of an experience there. 
And when you leave there, I mean, with the cane, I thought of the cane as a tool. And you leave there thinking, this is an extension of me um, that I use now everywhere I go. And it has opened up my world. Before I went there, I'll tell you, my world had shrunk down to my house and my yard and just my immediate neighborhood. And now I can pretty much go anywhere and do go anywhere. I mean, I walk, you know, two miles from home now to the shopping center and expand your world. And it, it may be kind of overdramatic to say, but in Vietnam, you are safe inside the wire. And so when you're blind, inside the wire was my house. Now I can go outside the wire and go to the shopping center and anywhere I want to go. And that would, was only made possible by the training I got. And I don't know what else to say about it, to tell you the truth. That's amazing. Leslie is over here, like just <laughs> melting because, you know, she talks about O&M training, waking training, how, you know, that's the first step to opening up your world. So Leslie is over here, like, mm -hmm. just. I, no, I, I, it's hard to even add anything because you're doing such a great job of describing it and, and the impact that it has on people's lives. And I'm just so thankful that you made it here. And I think we hear this too many times from clients is that they should have been here sooner if they would have known, had they known their diagnosis, had they known that services exist. And I don't know how more we can scream this from the rooftops other than like you're doing right now of just sharing your personal story and, and sharing it with the world and anybody you interact with because there are so many people out in this world who are experiencing vision loss um, and don't know that services exist or don't have access to services mm -hmm. or don't know that they qualify for services. And you're a true testament to that. It's changed your life. You're now able to go out and go places independently and... Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it, you're right. It is why we do what we do. It's why Leader Dog is so important and critical in the world of uh, a blindness and low vision. So I'm just really thankful that you're sharing your story. Well, and you know, if there's one thing that uh, Lynn told me that I would impart upon anybody before they've gotten the training is the, the acronym. Lynn is a walking wealth of acronyms, by the way. But his acronym case in anything that you do, you do it carefully. You do it with accurate information. You do it safely and you do it as efficiently as is safe. And I think through that acronym every time I cross a street. I think that's great. So, Bill, I had the honor of working with Lynn also, Lynn Gautreau. He is from Louisiana, uh -huh. and he's a certified uh -huh. orientation and mobility specialist. And when I first came to Leader Dog as a practicum student back in January of 2013, I also got uh -huh. to work with Lynn. And I remember Case to this day and often use that uh -huh. acronym as well. Um, he's an amazing instructor. He is definitely a outside of the box instructor. I remember all the time when yep. working with him, I'd teach something, you know, textbook that I learned at the university and he'd say, but why? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, that's why, I, that's how I was taught. And then he'd say, but yep. why not this way? You know, if, if it meets the mm -hmm. case and, and he's right. Like there are a million ways he to is. do something, whatever's going to work best for that client. And I'm so glad he's continuing to share his knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. And, 
little did I know that before this, he was a tightrope walker. Oh, gosh. Oh, what, what hasn't that man done? Wait, a tightrope yes. walker? I'll just yes. ask him. He, he taught kids <laughs> at the Louisiana State Institute for the Blind to walk on a tightrope. Man. He also took them bike riding, horseback riding, scuba diving. Yeah. I mean, like, you name it, Lynn has done it. That's And, and taken oh, yeah. kids who are blind and visually impaired with him to do it. So... Awesome. Lynn is the one who informed me about the federal white cane law. <laughs> Lynn said, no, you have the right of way anytime you have your white cane. But you, <laughs> just because you have the right to it, yeah. No, yeah, then you'll be right or dead right. So <laughs> right or dead right. The right to refuse that right, yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Well, um, Bill, you, let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about your career because yeah. you were a teacher mm-hmm. later in life and you wrote this amazing book. Um, tell us a little bit about why you became a teacher later in life. Well, when I came home from Vietnam, I said, I don't, I, I have to go home somewhere and I didn't want to go back to a cotton farm. I'll tell you, uh, anybody who achieves combat over cotton, that should tell you something about cotton <laughs> farms. But I decided on Washington, D.C. And so I went to Washington and IBM had a program where they were hiring people to train to repair electric typewriters. And they were especially hiring veterans, so I went to work for IBM doing that. After several years at IBM, I went from there to Exxon. A lot of people don't know what's the connection between Exxon and IBM. Well, the connection is Exxon has a division that invented the memory typewriter and the facsimile machine. And so I went to work for them selling And from there, I got recruited to the Sheridan Corporation, and I got into the marketing department and then to GE. So if there is a big corporation, I managed to migrate to the mall. But I was having lunch one day with a friend of mine who was – and I said, I'm just so burned out of all of this. I just wish at this point in time I would do something else. And she said, what about teaching? And I said, well – I've thought about it, but I don't know. She said, my daughter-in-law is a principal at a middle school. Why don't you go and talk to her? So I did. And she said, well, my friend at the, uh, one of the nearby middle schools, he has an opening for an art teacher. Why don't you go talk to him? So I did. And over the period of about two weeks, uh, I interviewed with him twice and the superintendent. And this was in the middle of a school year, and he didn't have an art teacher. And so the the outcome was he said, you can have this job if you want it. I said, great. I'll go back, get the paperwork settled and everything and leave my job and start here at the beginning of the year. He said, no, I need you to start in two weeks at the beginning of the semester. And so I did, and I had never taught. And North Carolina has a program where you can start teaching. It's called lateral entry. If within a certain amount of time you take and pass the teacher certification test. So I ended that program and bought a book called The First Days of School on how to write a lesson plan, whatever, wrote 10 lesson plans. Went to school my first day as a teacher, expecting to have a teacher work with me. Got there, 
was informed that she had to fill in for a teacher who was out sick. So I walked into my sixth grade class on my first day of teaching all by myself with my 10 lesson plan. <laughs> oh, wow. And my, and my five rules of behavior. And that's where it started. And um, it was the best job I ever had for the least amount of money. That's the truth. That's incredible. And I, I started at 60 and I taught and I had to retire at 72. But I'd still be there if, if I could be. Um, middle schoolers are truly in the middle. <laughs> They're what I call tweens who want to be teens and teens who want to be 20. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember I, my middle school years. I I think that is very well, true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I give them credit for keeping me young in spirit because I know I knew every song by Rihanna. I knew every song by <laughs> Keith Urban. I knew every song by hey, Snoop Dogg. You're hip, man. And um, and when they were studying, if they brought in music, I'd let them play it. And I said, now, if there's a curse word on here, we're done. <laughs> and so we would play music while they were supposed to be studying. And that was novel to them. Um, and... Uh, so I That's... remember taking them to a college one day on the visit, and there was a college student asleep on the couch. <laughs> and one of my students said to one of these students giving us a tour, are you allowed to sleep in class? He said, well, you can <laughs> as long as you don't get your work done. Get yes. your work done. And she said, we're not even allowed to chew gum. Oh, my goodness. Well, Bill, we've talked about your past. Let's talk about your future. Fifty uh, percent of the people for O&M come back and get a guide dog. Are, is that in your future, or, or is the cane enough for you? I don't really know yet, and to be honest with you, I don't know how to assess that need for me. And at some point in time, I'm, I'm going to have to do that, and maybe you can direct me to some source of guidance on that decision. But I do know that since I came back, I have taken, I have an application right here on my desk to join the Lions Club in my neighborhood. And my intent was, and this was spurred on by a few weeks ago, I was walking with my cane and I encountered a young kid who might have been first grade age with about a two foot long cane. He and his father coming up the sidewalk. And I thought, you know what, I want to see if I can promote the Lion Club to have me promote going into elementary schools and teaching kids what the cane is and what it means. Uh, in some regard, to, to do something to pay back the Lions Club and for the Lions Club to be more supportive. So I don't know how I'm going about that, but that's my plan. That's awesome, Bill. Thank you so much. I know we could talk forever. I apologize that we're wrapping up here, but thank you for, for sharing your story and being so vulnerable. I think so many people are going to relate to this experience. Um, and if mm -hmm. you want to talk about those guide dog options or anything like that, you know you can call me because I'm happy to have those conversations with you. I need Leslie's permission. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you give me a call, we'll, we'll have those conversations. So, so thank you for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for listening to the Taking the Lead podcast. I'm Leslie Hoskins with hosts Timothy Cunio and Christina Hapner. We hope you enjoyed learning all about Bill's experiences and please join us next week as we continue to dive into the world of blindness. If you'd like to learn more about applying to our free services at Leader Dog, you can head to leaderdog.org or call us at 888-777-5332. 
And don't forget, you can reach us at takingthelead at leaderdog.org with any questions or ideas. If you like today's podcast, make sure to hit subscribe and check us out wherever podcasts stream. This season of the Taking the Lead podcast is brought to you by a longtime supporter of LeaderDog, the Mary P. Dolciani Halloran Foundation. As you may know, generous donors like this one make it possible to achieve our mission. The Mary P. Dolciani Halloran Foundation supports the study of mathematics and mathematics education. For more information about our generous sponsor, visit their website at www.dolcianihalloranfoundation.org.